Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 144 called Stephanie L. Today's episode is presented by Belly. Belly offers modern prenatal vitamins optimized for fertility, prenatal, and post-pregnancy health. To learn more about how to optimize your fertility and pregnancy health, check out their vegan-friendly, dairy-free, non-GMO vitamins for both men and women at bellybaby.com. That's spelled B-E-L-I-B-A-B-Y.com. The best part, if you use code Alley 15 you'll get 15% off your first month of either Belly Women or Belly Men. Again, that's code Alley 15 A-L-I-1-5 for 15% off. Thanks, Belly. Okay, guys, so where do I even begin with my friend Stephanie, who I met through Instagram? She has been through a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, 10 transfers, 10 transfers in her IVF treatment. And spoiler alert, she is actually currently pregnant and going to give birth very soon. I'm not going to tell you which number baby she's going to give birth to, but I want you guys to hear it all for yourself. I will say that she is incredible. And like so many of my guests, she wants to share her story to make you guys feel less alone. She's been through so much. And without further ado, this is Stephanie's infertility story. Stephanie, I'm so glad to talk to you. We have been DMing and like chatting on Instagram, I feel like for two years. Um, yes, I think it has been two years. I look yeah, so I feel like I know you, but we just officially met. So thank you for doing this. And let's start at the beginning with you. Did you always want to have kids? Uh, I did. I was never that person that really, you know, planned, picked out the kid names and uh, you know, planned, I want to have, you know, one of this and one of that. And, but I knew like, I wanted to be a mom, some capacity. Okay. So flashing forward, what happened when you started to try? Yeah. So I met my husband, my fourth year of medical school, and I'm a little bit of a cougar. I'm like nine years older than he is. And yes, <laughs> I, I remember when we, when we met, he said, Oh, this wouldn't work out. You're going to want like marriage and babies. And I want to be a surgeon and which is ironic because he did not end up being a surgeon. Neither one of us are, but uh-huh. uh, we're both emergency physicians, but he, and then he came back like six months later and said, you know what? You're right. We're meant to be together. Let's, let's do this. And, you know, as far as being a little bit older, whatever happens, happens, we'll, you know, take it one step at a time. Cause yeah. How old were you when you guys got married? I was 35. Okay. So when, how long before you started talking about babies and starting to expand your family? Um, you know, we wanted to get through our intern year of training. I, I had never been pregnant before and I didn't want to, you know, when you're like a new doctor, you're judged pretty, you know, under the microscope. And I, I didn't want to be nauseated and have someone think, oh, well, she's just nervous or it just felt like taking on a lot. So we decided we weren't going to try it all really that first year or even that into the second year of our marriage. But after that, we started trying and I guess it was uh, 2015. Okay. And, you know, we, it, in, in some respects, uh, you know, being both in training at the time was very difficult because sometimes we'd both be on opposite schedule. So one of us would be working overnight and the other would be working during the day. And, you know, I'm not an REI, but I'm pretty sure it 
you need to be in the same room for seven. Right. Months. You're like, <laughs> when are we going to knock boots so that we can actually try? Out- <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that was probably part of our trouble was just coordinated and actually being able to try. But I, I think with my age, my, um, I went to a regular OB guide visit and my OB kind of said, Hey, are you thinking about this? You're already over 35. And I knew I was already quote AMA, um, advanced maternal age. Mm-hmm. We have a doctor in the group. If you want to just, you know, talk about it, I'm, you know, happy to set up the appointment. And so I said, you know, it's what's the harm. And so we had that appointment and, uh, that's kind of how we got started on even before we didn't wait the whole one year thing. That's, um, right. Not necessary, as I think a lot of people find out sometimes on the on the later end. But yes, I think I've been talking about that a lot lately. Where it's just like you don't need to wait the year. The year is just like arbitrary. So we got connected to an REI that actually is part of the hospital that we both worked at at the time, and uh, you know we started with the meds and um, did all the initial testing, the sperm analysis, the the HSG to make sure your tubes are open the hormone testing, all that stuff. And basically we were, everything looked good. We were labeled the favorite unexplained infertility. So. Yes. um, Isn't that a great term? Yeah. (laughs) You know, you really want, so it's nice to know nothing's wrong specifically, but then you don't have anything to fix or, you know, a specific solution to try. You're just kind of shooting in the dark. uh, No pun intended. What did they tell you to do or what were you thinking at the time? Well, we had options to, I guess when you try like the Clomid and the Femara, there's evidence that you, after you try it for so many months, if it hasn't worked, it, the effectiveness is really not going to be there. And our doctor was very evidence-based and straightforward about, look, you know, we've kind of reached that max. And he asked a very important question at the time that I thought was kind of insane because I was just focused on trying to have one baby. But he said, you know, what do you want your family to look like? Do you want multiple kids? Do you just want one kid? You know, what does that look like for you guys? And we hadn't really talked about that. I think when you're trying so hard just to have one, it feels silly to even think about a gaggle of kids or something. You know, it just, it was a very foreign idea to me that neither one of us had really talked about. We'd sort of almost given up on that idea. Right. Exactly. Um, But what our doctor said that really, I think, totally flipped how we were looking at IVF. You know, we'd sort of, we're looking at IVF like, oh, this is a last ditch. This is, you know, kind of failure of everything else. And now we're here. And instead of looking at it like that, he said, well, if you know you want more than one kid, and my husband's one of four boys and I have an older sister. So we did ideally want more than one. Um, if you know you want more than one, then it makes sense not to wait and keep trying, but to go ahead and do the IVF now because any eggs and embryos that we're able to make now are going to be there when you're trying for number two or number three or what have you. And if you do, you know, even if you were lucky to get pregnant on Clomid or Fermara now, then you still might, when you're trying for number two, have the same difficulty and then be that much older and trying IVF. Yes. Makes perfect sense. And but so at the that, time you're like, wow, I never even thought about that before. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so to me, it really flipped IVF from like this, like I said, kind of 
not a failure, but just sort of a last resort because we nothing else had worked to being able to kind of take the wheel and take control of our journey. At least that's how I felt at the time. And uh, it really kind of made me a lot more optimistic and positive about the experience um, than I had been. Yeah. Cause it's like, okay, now you've got opportunities, you know, it may, maybe it makes you feel hopeful for down the road. Yeah. And okay. at the time, fortunately our insurance, I think paid up to $5,000 towards infertility testing. And so we had a little bit of coverage, but mm-hmm. really, I think it was maybe two or three weeks that we made the decision and had to come up with the finances. Um, because the, really the bulk we were going to pay out of pocket um, to go ahead and do that first retrieval. Right. Um, yeah. And as many listeners know, it's like $5,000 sounds great. But then once you get into it, you see the actual sheet of like what everything costs. You're like, oh, that's like a drop in the bucket. Cool. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time, because this was 2016, I was happy. It was rare to have any money that would go towards yeah, you know, infertility at all. So that's true. Um, I didn't have any. Was, what happened when you guys started down that IVF road and how many rounds did you end up doing and all that? Yeah. So that first retrieval was pretty successful. I think they got, you know, 17, uh, I forget, you know, how fast the drop-off was, but we ended up sending 10 five-day blasts. Well, we transferred, we did one fresh transfer Mm -hmm. and then we sent nine to the freezer, which now I know was great. I think being new to the process at the time, I didn't know what to make of that number, but now I know that that was really, yeah, um, that's a lot, a good result. So we were, we were happy with that. And at the time, genetic testing wasn't recommended. I hadn't had any losses. I was 35, maybe 36 by this point. So we didn't, we just did the fresh transfer and it worked Yeah, um, (laughs) on the first try, which uh, was not my, my expectation. I think I'd set myself up for, you know, just for it to take two or maybe three right. transfers, but yeah, which is often the case. I'm like you in that it did work on the first try. And I, now I know in retrospect, how fucking lucky that was. Like yeah. Yeah. so many of my friends and, you know, people in this community are six, seven, eight rounds, you know, it takes so long and it's so frustrating and, and devastating. So what was it like when you got the call that you were pregnant? Well, I cheated a little. I did test at home, but I'd had a trigger and I didn't know enough about, you know, actually I was being a silly medical person. I was, you know, on my pharmacology references trying to figure out what that metabolic half-life was for um, for the HCG trigger and, you know, when that should fall out of my system and all this stuff. And I think I might've even, I'm such a geek, grafted it an Excel as a chart. I love um, it. <laughs> I love a good Excel spreadsheet chart, whatnot. No, but, and, and I ended up, I couldn't, I was like, oh, my clinic's going to think I'm insane. Little, you know, a lot of people test at home, but I sent them, I sent uh, my favorite nurse a message and I was like this, I have this, but I don't know if I can, you know, think it's real or not. And, and she sent me sort of a very hopeful message that was like, oh, that's, that's a good line. That would be pretty surprising to be still the trigger in your system. And then, and our betas all came back, uh, doubling appropriately. And wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So your first baby was born, what, 2016? Uh, February of 
2017, which was actually two months early. Okay. I uh, was in my third year of emergency medicine training and working maybe 80 hours a week, flipping from day shift to night shift. And I ended up developing severe preeclampsia and HELP syndrome. And so I, I just remember feeling like every day I was waking up, I was running a marathon and I could tell that every day, you know, I was just dragging more and more. And there was, I was getting farther and farther away from the finish line. I had headaches and I was, uh, my legs looked like tree trunks. And ultimately um, I was at work and I, one of the other doctors, female physicians said, you know, you should check your urine for protein because my blood pressures were up. But I thought, you know, I have a stressful job. I just had to put some, I had to intubate and put somebody on a ventilator that was in this terrible car accident. Of course, my heart rate and my blood pressure are up, you know, oh, wow. I have a headache, I'm dehydrated. I'm always, you know, you never take care of yourself when you're at work, but she said, right. you know, check, check your urine and it had the hallmark protein. Uh, and so at like three 30 in the morning, I checked myself in to L and D at my own hospital and wow. basically had our daughter two days later after an emergent doctor. So okay. she was, she came in at 32 weeks and yeah. uh, three days, Okay, um, so, which was really scary and not the best birth experience, but you know, I, I, we were happy to be in the hospital with people that we work with and we knew and we trusted and we mm-hmm. knew what they were doing and we were happy. Our hospital is like the big academic center that has the NICU. One yeah. of the things I think is horrific is if you have to go through that and then you get separated you know, yes. mom's at one hospital and baby ends up at a NICU at a different hospital. That Yes. Yeah. I just want to commend the NICU, you know, doctors and nurses and everybody involved in the NICU. There's so many amazing people doing those jobs. And also the medical professionals like you that are going through, you know, infertility or assisted reproductive technology while they're working in the medical field. There's so many of you guys, and it's just such a you're doing, you know, thankless work and amazing work and, but also going through this at the same time. So just shout yeah, out. It, it really out is. It really is hard. Like diagnosing people in the ER, you know, a lot of people come in for abdominal pain or, you know, vaginal bleeding and I'm diagnosing them as pregnant. And to some of them, that's welcome news to others. It's not welcome news. And, you know, and that, that, you know, we're all human beings. That's can be particularly painful when you want something so, so badly, you know, and it seems to happy happen so easily or accidentally for other people. And so right. I appreciate you. Yeah. Appreciate such a good point. That. Well, I'm glad that, you know, your daughter went through the NICU and when did she, how long was she there? She was there 34 days, uh-huh. uh, basically just what they call feeding and growing. Um, she did have a complication when it turned out she had actually had a small stroke when she was in the NICU that we didn't know about at the time because you couldn't necessarily tell from looking at her or anything. But um, she, um, at four months, her pediatrician caught that her head circumference had gotten very big and sent us for an ultrasound and essentially diagnosed hydrocephalus. And so at four months old, she had brain surgery to put in a shunt, which is a tube that drains the excess fluid from the brain down to the abdomen. And she still has that today. She'll have that for life. And so I think I harbor, you know, with working so hard and working so many hours, I, and I know this is, you know, the rational part of me knows that, you know, I didn't do this. I'm not responsible, but, you know, I always wonder, do, you know, would she have to deal with this lifetime health issue uh, if, you know, I hadn't had to work 
so much or, you know, if the hours were a little less demanding or whatnot. So I did, yeah. And my sub spoiler, subsequent pregnancies did make a conscious decision that I was going to, you know, advocate for myself and, um, you know, or, you know, fight for, you know, reasonable hours in third trimester and maternity starting when it should and things like that. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Cause I do think, you know, we, as women are really hard on ourselves and, you know, you don't ever really know, right. What affects one thing, or if, if something could have been different, if you hadn't been working so hard. Okay. So we know that this is not the end of your story. What happened when you started trying for number two? Well, we, uh, actually ended up with a surprise, spontaneous pregnancy as our next step in the journey. Okay. Um, in March, 2018, when our daughter was just over a year old, I randomly, I'm usually pretty regular, but I was maybe two days late, took a test and what in the world, right? You go through IVF and then all of a sudden, boom. And I remember I REI at the time saying, sometimes you just have to quote, dust out the cobwebs, which I remember being somewhat insulted by at the time thinking, you know, that was a a, a knock on my age and stuff, but I think you might've been right. Like, it's almost like once your body figures out a little bit what to do, um, or who knows, maybe it's all freaking random crapshoot. I don't know. Who knows? Exactly. (laughs) Who knows? But, but that's what happened. Um, and so we were just like over the moon, you know, and didn't, and a little bit overwhelmed to be honest, because that, that spacing was, uh, maybe less than ideal, but just sort of happy to have the gift if you will. But unfortunately we did at this point, I was like, what, 41, 40. Um, we did the non-invasive prenatal testing, which, um, unfortunately showed high risk for trisomy 21, which is down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And then we followed that up it was devastating. We followed yeah, it up with a, C, with a, um, with a CVS right around 11 weeks. Cause that was the test we could do sooner rather than mm-hmm. an amnio. And unfortunately that also confirmed the diagnosis of, uh, trisomy 21. And at mm-hmm. the time, you know, it's funny, you can only do, and you can only make decisions off the information you have at the time in your life or whatever you're going through. Right. And so at the time, our daughter, like I said, was over just over a year old, but she had this brain issue. She wasn't walking. She wasn't talking. We didn't know if those things would ever happen. You know, we didn't know if she was going to be wheelchair bound. There were a lot of big unknowns and question marks as far as her health. And then I had gotten so sick with her pregnancy, you know, and the idea that this pregnancy, even if it survived a term, might require, you know, congenital heart surgeries. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, her going through brain surgery was, I, I can't even tell you, one of the definitely yeah. top three most stressful things in my life. And, right. you know, we barely knew if we could keep it together to take care of one special needs child, nevertheless, too. And so, right. We made, you know, and then my health, like what happens if, you know, I get super sick in, you know, in pregnancy again for what might not even be a viable pregnancy. It just felt like such a risk. Such Um, a hard decision. And thank you for 
for sharing all of this with us. So what, what were the conversations like between you and your husband at this point and your doctors? Yeah, I, I think we were all on the same page in terms of those concerns. You know, I also had, I don't know, maybe they're selfish, but I thought, you know, I don't, I don't want to stay home. I fought, I went, you know, for the training. I, I like being a doctor. I, you know, I, I wanted to be able to keep my career, but, you know, there were a lot of things that just, whether financially or just in terms of our family and f- feeling fulfillment, it felt very uncertain if, if we continued that pregnancy. So um, my husband was very supportive. He was sort of, you know, whatever. He didn't put it all on me to make the decision, but, you know, I know, I know a hundred percent that no matter what I picked, he would have been supportive in that, but he did, uh, you know, we, we made the decision together. And also I had a very good um, genetics nurse that helped give me realistic uh, and accurate information about the true risk of, you know, will this pregnancy even go to term? And, you know, what's the risk of heart defects and a lot of the other um, complications that can come with those genetic abnormalities. Right. So um, I felt like we were making an informed decision that at the time was the best for our family. You know, it turns out our daughter is, you know, perfectly what you would call neurotypical. You know, you'd never know that she's got a tube in her brain that goes all the way to her belly um, and that she was early. And yeah, but you know, but we didn't know that at the time. Sure. So you have to make this decision terminating for medical reasons, right? Yep. T-F-M-R. That's, it's tough. It's really tough. Yeah. And it Um, it felt like such a fucking slap in the face. It's like, why in the world did we get this gift of this spontaneous pregnancy only to have it yanked away like that? You know, it just, I'm so sorry. You know, like what was the point? It just felt like, really, do we need to go through more after everything we've just been through in the last year or two? Exactly. Um, And I I was mad at the world, to be honest. Yes. I would have been too. Fuck. Yeah. So that was yeah. What's the process? I mean, not you don't have to get into the details of the termination, but you know the grieving process and the aftermath. And how do you how did you get through that? Because you've got a little one at home, and you know she's she's going through some stuff too. Yeah, I I was one of those people. I wanted to like get past it and get on to trying again. It's funny because we weren't even trying when we got pregnant, but then once we were pregnant and kind of had that vision you know, or had adjusted to the idea, it was all I could think about to heal, you know, and, and, and it, like people say, it's not a replacement, but you just, I don't know. That's what felt right for me was to try again to build our family. I did, I ended up having a DNE, but unfortunately there was, um, my HCG would not go down. And I, again, I advocated for a ultrasound and it turned out there was some retained tissue that I think we tried two rounds of methotrexate to get the, use medicine to help try to clear that up so that my HCG would go down. And, um, eventually I think it was like 12, maybe 16 weeks later. So it was an entire summer really that I was sort of being reminded that sort of this pregnancy was like lingering or. So how far along were you when you did the the termination? How many weeks? Uh, 12 weeks, six days. Yeah. Rough. I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know, and unfortunately Virginia 
has some laws like uh, you know, forced language they have to tell you when you're trying to make a decision, which, you know, is, in my opinion, inappropriate and not medically necessary and excessively painful, particularly when it's a desired pregnancy, you know, to have be forced to get re-ultrasound. I just had two ultrasounds in the last 24 hours, but you have to, you know, you know, at the facility that day, you have to have another ultrasound. You know, the the folks were kind enough to you know, not make me look at it or, you know, turn the screen or whatever, you know, so there's a lot of things that play into it depending on your state, which are just, just like, I, again, add insult to injury, like you said before. Yes. Yes. Oh, can we fix that? Come on people. I know I do. I have a lot of friends uh, from medical school and uh, that are OB-GYN and really trying to advocate and fix some of those things because every woman's story you know, and reason for the path that they're taking is different. And I can tell you, having been on the patient side and have been on the physician side too, like uh, nobody is in a position to judge what's right for, you know, one woman or her family. It's just. Yeah. I remember talking to somebody who was telling me that they had to terminate for medical reasons and, you know, they were just, the people were very insensitive. It's like, so you're getting an abortion, you know? And it was like, no, that's not let's not spin it that way. Let's not frame it that way. Let's not break my heart even more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it technically is, it's the same procedure, you know? And so medically, I think it's important we do recognize it as that and use that word. I personally have a hard time, you know, just because of, you know, I'm not particularly religious. I think that's what I told you. I originally attracted me to your podcast was, uh, I had found a lot online that were very religious and I didn't necessarily connect to F bombs. I can connect to. <laughs> Talk. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We connected uh, over that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but tech- you know, technically right. it was an abortion. Um, yeah. For, you know, one of the million different reasons that women choose to go that route. So. Right. Exactly. I don't know. There's something about abortion or ter- termination just seems like a more humane term to me yeah. personally. Yeah, la- my yeah. Opinion. yeah. Um, language, you know, the lang- language matters a lot. And I, you know, so, some days I struggle with that, like it shouldn't, or it should, or, you know, how do we talk about these things and, and be fair, but yeah. So yeah. needless to say that left, I, I left that scenario super motivated to try again, but unfortunately, unlike our, you know, first uh, transfer that worked on the first try, we found ourselves in the boat that I think a lot of other people are where, you know, it's, you really have a lot of failure before you have any success. Right. So I guess it was like August, 2018. Fortunately, we had a bunch in the freezer. We hadn't yet tested them because we still had the nine on ice, right? Yeah. We had nine on ice, but they weren't genetically tested and now having been through what we just went through, you know, right. a loss for genetic issues, I okay. was hell bent to do whatever I could to avoid going through a similar situation. Cause it was just right. such a terrible experience. Yeah. Um, so we so actually, could you get them tested? yeah, we, um, talked about it with our doctor and ended up, um, well, I should say too, in the, in the meantime, a couple of things happened. So the hospital we worked for built an entire embryology lab and hired embryologists and our doctor, who had been basically doing procedures at a competitor, but moved over and had his own, you know, his own 
practice entirely. And so we transferred our embryos from the other place in town. And it turned out because the hospital owned the place, we now had 100% coverage for through insurance for wow, IVF. That's incredible. Okay. Which was amazing. So those were the yeah. bright those were the bright sides going into trying again. Right. Okay. And so I, I have a picture of me with the cooler that they give you, that they make you sign your life away and you basically take the cooler over to the other place and they load up your embryos and yes. you sign a bunch of stuff. And then you, I had it strapped into my front seat, you know, with the seatbelt on and oh, everything, really? just like they were precious cargo. Know, precious cargo. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of hope in my face. Yes, um, that, that some of those nine were in it and the nine turned into six after testing. Okay. Um, six of the nine were uh, genetically normal. Wow. That's still yeah. a high number. Yeah. So then what happened? So we started pr- pretty much right away, right? These were all going to be um, frozen transferred. We decided to try unmedicated just because why not? And we transfer one normal. It failed. Next month did another unmedicated transferred. And, you know, we sort of thought, well, we got success on the first try last time. We're due for a couple failures. Right. So transfer two unmedicated. It was a normal one failed. Transfer three, tried a medicated cycle just to, you know, do something different. It didn't use one of the normal embryos failed. Transfer four. <laughs> and these were all back to back. This is like all through the fall of 2018. Mm, yeah. Um, so four, uh, we tra- did another medicated cycle, but adjusted the meds a little bit, nothing crazy. And that failed. And so then we sort of, I, I was over it. It was like Christmas time. I was like, you know what, let's regroup after the new year. And we decided that in January, we were going to try a hysteroscopy where they actually go and look with the camera and look for, cause you know, I'd had that DNA. Was there a complication or scar right. there? You know, like are yeah. we missing something? But really they're checking that, like the health of your uterus and the the, the viability yeah. of like an implantation. Because right. it seems like something has changed, right? Because before I was had a very hospitable uterus, if you will, and then all right. of a sudden now we've had you know all these failures of transfers. So, and at this point we opted to go ahead and do another retrieval. Cause we knew we only had two left. Mm. Um, and again, just sort of thinking, Ooh, we, you know, we're, we're not having success here. We, and you're, we're not getting any younger. Let's, let's do another retrieval and try to bank some things. So we did our second retrieval in February, 2019 and got three, five day blasts. And unfortunately two of those were abnormal and one was a mosaic. So we basically, did our fifth transfer. We transferred the two normals we still had and that failed. And oh my God. so that was like all of our six normal embryos from that first retrieval were gone. Yeah. The, the ones in the cooler in the front seat were gone. Oh, I'm so um, sorry. And, and are you just yeah. like emotionally, how are you doing? Cause this is, you're putting your body through a lot physically. You're putting your marriage through a lot you know, your relationship with your daughter, not that that would have, you know, suffered, but like, it's hard, you know, you've got, you're raising a child at the same time. Like you've got a lot going on. Yeah. I think that's about when, you know, I, I was like, you know, am I insane? Am I chasing something that 
am I just silly now? You know, am I the lady showing up to the clinic and all the people just don't want to tell me that like, maybe I should give up, you know, cause I felt like we were trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And, you know, the not, definition of insanity, you know, yeah. like, and I, I not just, that you, you know what I mean? There's that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that that's when I, I was just so frustrated. And so, um, but then at the same time, I would oscillate back and say, but you know what, we're lucky. We have insurance coverage. We're in a position to keep doing this for an extended time that a lot of people would, would kill to be in that, you know, have, you know, a financial coverage like that, you know, we need to just keep going, you know, just kind of put your head, same thing I did to get through medical school is just sort of put your head down and take it day by day. And one day you look up and you have, you know, hopefully earn, achieve what you've been working hard for, you know, it, right. Um, Cause otherwise it just feels like a grind. So to sort of speed it up the, uh, we did a third retrieval in March of 2019, again, just kind of thinking, well, we have this coverage, we might as well do it. I generally, I do well with the meds. They don't turn me into some raging, crazy person, mm-hmm. gain a little bit of weight with it, but for the most part feel like my normal self. And so, mm-hmm. um, I felt like physically I was definitely fine. You know, emotionally I was struggling, but physically and financially we were right. prepared to do it. And I did, I gave my husband like a pass because scheduling wise, you know, with uh, both of us, you know, being physicians and working at the same place, it was difficult. We basically had him freeze a whole bunch of sample and I was kind of doing all of this on my own, um, which was okay. Cause it just sort of seemed like if it's just going to keep failing and it's going to be quote wasted time, it should only be wasting the time of one of us, you know? Yeah. So that makes sense. So that's kind of, you know, we were both on board with that. So we did our third retrieval. We got four or five day blasts. Um, one was normal and three were abnormal. And so this was, it was amazing to me, like in just two years from um, mm-hmm. age, what, 38 to 40. Yeah. Like I had gotten, you know, uh, six, seven normals. And yep. then now I'm down to one. none or one right. retrieval. Absolutely. Um, it's crazy. So we started, fortunately, my doctor's pretty progressive and is willing to transfer both mosaics and abnormals. I know not all REIs will do that. Um, he was always willing to tr- transfer things that would not result in a live birth. So like he would never transfer like a, you know, trisomy 18 or trisomy 21, but things that never had a reported live birth of that particular defect, you know, we sort of assumed, well, if it's a, you know, true positive, it's not compatible in the worst case, it would end in a miscarriage. I said, I was willing to accept that. I say, having never had a miscarriage myself before, and if it was a false positive, meaning the embryo was actually normal, then maybe we'd end up with a healthy pregnancy. And there are many, many cases now at the time, this was sort of a novel idea, but there are many, many cases now of healthy pregnancies with mosaic and abnormal embryos. Um, so there are a lot of doctors that will transfer them depending on what those particular abnormalities right. are. 
Yes. There's a, a really great article in New York magazine that came out a couple of years ago, but all about mosaic embryos. And it's just fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, and I think it's important, you know, when you're trying to decide whether to test or not, we would have given up on testing or started, you know, stop testing if I think if my doctor wasn't willing to transfer them, because otherwise we would have just been empty handed with nothing to transfer. Mm-hmm. You know, again, it was still important to me to try to avoid another, you know, genetic defect because that was so difficult. But at the same time, like I'd reached a point where I was like, you know what, I'm almost willing to face that again because the alternative is not having another child. Yeah. You know, you just sort of weigh. Yeah. You weigh your option. The bar is constantly (laughs) shifting, right? Yes. Yes. You never thought you would have considered X, Y, and Z until you got to a certain point. And then it's like, oh, well, maybe we should do this. It's so interesting. Yeah. And my husband was always good about that. We sort of would check in, you know, it's exhausting if you're trying to check in like every week, but you know, every month or two, two months, three months, we just sort of make sure we were still on the same page in terms of what we could tolerate physically, financially, emotionally in our marriage. And I think that was important, you know, cause it changes. It definitely changes. Yeah. It's all situational. Definitely. So, so we ended up doing we ended up actually stop. We stopped testing just because we were transferring. We were only getting abnormals and mosaics, and we were transferring them all anyway. So just that was the. I think that was the one part that our insurance might not have covered. If yeah. I know. Um, and so it, it was kind of like, you know, right. and the other thing was our our daughter. Our very first success was a fresh transfer, and that was the only thing we hadn't tried yet these had all been frozen transfers. And I thought, well, maybe my body just wants a fresh transfer again. Mm. And I I knew that I was not going to be able to call it quits until we kind of tried all the reasonable things. And so that was the other reason on retrieval four, we ended up not testing and we got three, uh, we got two day five blasts and three day six blasts. And so we ended up right after that, doing transfer, what was, I think, transfer nine at this point. We transferred two of the non-tested embryos that looked the best, and that failed. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So. You're such a badass for going through all this, though. It was was exhausting. Did you have, were there people in your life who were just like, what are you doing? Like, did anyone question you or like? Yeah, I I think uh, my parents sort of I probably told them half of what was going on right you know uh, at some point you the conversations you know early on I was sharing with friends like kind of updates like oh we did a transfer but then when they keep failing having that conversation over and over again is just exhausting and awkward for everyone and so when I needed to talk I would reach out but yeah I think I think some folks worried, you know, that, that I was putting too much on myself physically and, you know, and emotionally too. So, but I, and and this was about the time I started thinking like, all right, is this the end of our journey? Like what, how do I come to peace, you know, and make peace with this? If we're going to be a family of three, you know, like what, what else do I need to do either in this process or talking to my doctor or, Mm -hmm. Is there another test or, you know, and I looked a little bit about um, immunology because um, yeah. I do have two autoimmune 
um, skin conditions. I have vitiligo, which is like uh, the white patches you see on people's skin. And then I have psoriasis. Uh And I actually set up an appointment um, with one of the leading doctors in that space. And unfortunately, um, he literally died two weeks before my appointment. I mean, it was horrific, right? Like, oh, what a loss to the infertility world. That was kind of the doctor side of me because this is the guy was like a pioneer. And then personally, I was just like, are you kidding me? Like another kick, kick me while I'm down. (laughs) Like this was my, this was my hope. This was the thing I was hanging on to, to to close the door or whatever. And so what I ended up doing was um, where we went to medical school, they actually um, have uh, what's called the Jones Institute and they made the first um, IVF baby in the United States. And so they're a very strong, that's not where we live currently. It's about two hours away. And my husband and I decided that, you know what, we're going there for a second opinion. I had ironically as a fourth year medical student done a rotation in REI, not knowing at the time that I was going to be on the other side of things. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, had rotated with one of the female physicians there who was, I just left with a very positive impression. And so I basically went back to her and said, look, here's what we've been through. We're, I think, near the end of the road. What do you think? And the first thing she said is, well, when did you do your ERA? I don't see that on your timeline. Mm-hmm. And I said, we know, well, we never did one because, and, and my doctor's correct, there's not a, really a body of evidence that they increase, that an ERA test uh, for receptivity will increase live birth rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, my my current doctor, not the second opinion doctor, you know, I always appreciated, like he was very conscientious of the fact that, you know, people's time and money and health is sacred and to, you know, be very deliberate about what he recommended or didn't. So he had always steered us away from that. And I honestly followed him because I was checking the evidence behind him and knew that he was right. There wasn't really a lot that said that ERA is helpful. Mm-hmm. But at this point, like I said, I was near the end of the road. I was desperate to try like, or check whatever those last boxes were so that I could make peace. And, you know, if we were going to close our, close the book on all this. And so, uh, I, I went back to my doctor cause it, it was all in network and covered. And I said, would you be willing to do this? And he said, sure. You know, with the understanding that, you know, here's the risks, here's the benefits. And there's not a lot of evidence, but sure. And so we did that. That was September, 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and it said I was 12 hours early receptive, which meant I needed somehow between my f- first pregnancy with my daughter that was successful. And now like two years later, two and a half years later, my window had changed, yeah. I guess, um, or shifted. Right. And so I so needed they- 12 more hours of progesterone. progesterone. Right. Okay. That's what I was going to say is they give you progesterone. Yep. Yeah. So we did that. And lo and behold, for transfer 10, we put in three untested blasts. Um, I think they were all day six. And Oliver was born in June of 2020. Oh my gosh, Oliver. <laughs> At 38 weeks. Transfer 10, Stephanie. I know, transfer, transfer 10. 10. Yeah. Wow. So, and he came at 38 weeks. I did get induced. I was starting to get. Um, ICP, which um, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. I honestly felt, you know, it's like you get a buildup. It's another liver issue, kind of like help syndrome, but you get a buildup of bile acids. And I was getting just a little bit itchy. Like some women have this and they are miserable. 
you know, and they're like scratching their skin off and very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I was lucky. I really was not even all that symptomatic, but he was also really big because my husband's six, five, and we seem to make very large babies. Wow. And so what color are you? Those, uh, I'm five, six. Okay. Uh, and I have a sister that's five, 10. Uh -huh. um, so, so we're kind of big and tall people and we have big heads too. So they saw he was getting big and, um, saw these bile acid levels creeping up and they said, you know what, at 37 weeks, everything's cooked. Well, let's do an induction. And so he came at 38. Mm -hmm. um, and we, everybody went home together. I was not, I was, you know, mentally present. I wasn't in the magnesium fog of, uh, of my first delivery. Yeah. Um, and it was really nice. It was a really healing to have a non-traumatic birth experience, especially after what we've been through with the loss and right, right. with our daughter it was just really, you know, really exactly what I needed. Um, yes. Wonderful. Yeah. So that was good. Now, when we went home, what we didn't realize is when we brought our daughter home, she came home on a schedule like clockwork because she'd had the best NICU nurses that had her feeding and sleeping on this perfect schedule. And we got all of her home and realized we've never done this before. We didn't have to do this. Our daughter came home right. trained. Right. And so he didn't sleep for like, you know, seven or eight months. And, you know, we, we kind of had no, it was almost like we were new parents. Cause uh, we had, to, you know, be a lot more deliberate about um, some uh, schedules and routines and things like that, but it was nice. Right. It was really nice just to um, have such a smoother Time yeah. Transition. That makes sense. So that's still not the end of your story, right? Oh, yeah. So, um, I assumed, well, you know, your OB always asks you afterwards, like, Oh, do you want an IUD or whatever? And I was convinced in my head, I was going to talk my husband into a vasectomy. And of course I thought, well, you know, we're IVF, like, you know, it's not going to happen naturally. And I think it was, April of this year, okay. I went and got 20, my 2021. 2021. I went and I got my regular mammogram. I was a little bit off schedule, you know, because I'd been breastfeeding. And so they want you, I think it's six months after you finish before you do that. And I go and I get my mammogram because at this point I'm 42. Um, and wouldn't you know, it shows a mass in my left breast. And I was like, oh gosh, that was a curveball. We don't have any cancer in our family, or any breast cancer. And I was like, oh gosh. So, and they wanted me to come in for follow-up imaging. And so the day after Easter, um, so that Monday after Easter, I was supposed to go back. And Sunday night, I took a test. This is probably the doctor in me because I get annoyed when people are, you know, when you go for like any kind of x-ray or CAT scan, they always ask you if you're pregnant. Right. Is like, there any chance know. that you could be pregnant? Yeah, yeah. Is there any chance? And I'm like, well, technically, you know, I think my husband and I, TMI had sex one time uh, in the last like month and it was not at the like ovulation window, but I guess technically right. I'm not in any birth control. And so I should take a test. So I'm like washing my kids in the bathtub and I, you know, pee on a stick, one of the cheapies, uh, and turn around and don't even pay attention to it until my little timer goes off. And sure shit, there's a line, a second line. Holy shit. And I was, and I, at, at first I was kind of like, oh gosh, my, we were, I was like, my husband, I don't know how he's going to react to this because 
you know, we uh, hadn't really talked about it, hadn't really planned for it. Um, I, I figured, well, maybe he'd like the tax break, but this means we, you know, don't fit in our house anymore. We don't fit in our cars anymore. Oh gosh. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a big deal. Right. Um, and so it, it ended up there that, that Sunday night, that the night of Easter was difficult because there was basically like 16 hours where I was potentially uh, had breast cancer and was pregnant. And I just kept thinking with my story, like, wouldn't that be the case, right? Here's like a blessing. Uh, yep. Here's this gift, but oh, by the way, it's tainted by yeah. the, fa- the fact that you have cancer or something. But fortunately, yeah. when I, I went, my appointment was like first thing Monday morning and it was the actual doctor that was doing um, the ultrasound and I read ultrasound too. So as soon as like they started the test, they were able to say that it was just a simple cyst and not anything cancerous, but like, I did not sleep that night (laughs) before. Also, are are you, are you nervous about the pregnancy? Like, is this going to be viable? What's going to happen? Because my only, yeah, my, my only other spontaneous pregnancy ended horrifically. And so I, you know, there's as terrible as the IVF process is, there's a, a reassurance, there's checkups, there's you know, some trans, a little bit of transparency to the process that, you know, for me, I, I'd learned that had been my experience. I'd learned to find comfort in that for better or worse. And this felt very just chaotic and, you know, like, what is, is this going to be a repeat of what happened before was really one of my big fears. Of course. Um, so what, what, when did, were you able to get in and see and see have an ultrasound and Hear the heartbeat. Yes. So my REI was awesome. Uh, He was willing to get me in, even though, you know, he didn't have anything to do with this one, uh, was willing to see me. Um, And so had me come in at what we thought would have been six weeks, but I was measuring only five weeks. And so um, it took a couple, maybe two or three ultrasounds to really make sure the the betas were doubling appropriately. He was kind enough to check betas too, which doesn't always happen with spontaneous pregnancy, but uh, but the ultrasounds were tracking like a week behind. And so we really weren't sure if it was going to be viable because based on that one time that we had sex and when in theory I should have ovulated and I'm usually pretty regular, like it, I must've like ovulated a week late and the sperm stuck around for a record, like six, seven, eight days. Oh my God. I mean, the scientific understanding of how long sperm can stick around and still fertilize is more like along the lines of three to five days max. And so I'll always wonder about that math. Um, yeah. you, you know, but, um, basically we ended up that it was just, I was a week behind where we thought we were. And then in June, right when actually at Oliver's, uh, first birthday party, we, surprised our family and told them we were pregnant again. And we actually had just gotten our um, NIPT results that were normal. We really were kind of waiting to tell oh. anybody until we got past that hurdle. Yeah. Um, and once we did, we also found out the gender and we, what we did is our genetic nurse leaves a voicemail saying what the gender is. And so we surprised everyone and we zoomed because of COVID uh, with a bunch of friends and family that were overseas and across the country. And not only did we tell them we were pregnant, um, surprise, uh, but we also 
ourselves listen to that voicemail and learn the gender with everybody. Oh my gosh. Too, what are you, what, what's the gender? Uh, so this one's a girl. So I am due as of today. Let's see. What am I? 35 weeks and change oh. due December 17th. So, wow. Um, so far, this has been a normal, healthy pregnancy. Actually, I'd say my easiest one so far. I've got no swelling. We even, I, I mentioned to you earlier, we even just uh, moved into a new house. We had to get some square footage now that we're going to be a family of five, which looking back is crazy because I still distinctly recall sitting down and making peace and mapping out that family of three, three. you know, when we are having so much trouble Right. Trying for number two um, to be in this position is amazing. Um, I'll be honest. Sometimes there's mixed emotions. Like I feel, you know, as a physician, I feel like I should be able to trust the science and the stuff should play out. You know, you take the medicine, you follow the steps, you know, and then, but sometimes it's just a freaking black box um yes. in a role <laughs> a crapshoot in vegas you know totally. like, it's like miracles do happen and sometimes the science doesn't play out how you think it's going to and it's just you never fucking know it's so yeah life and is I, wild and i just feel you know i could so easily have none or just evie you know our, our daughter you know like a different roll of the dice and i could still be you know on Facebook trying to talk to people and research things and, you know, doing what, you know, I try to stay online and be present and, you know, having been through kind of a little bit of everything with this be a resource yes. for other people. Cause I always found that that was, you know, one of the best outlets just kind of for information and emotionally and for advocating for myself was to talk to other people that had been through. Yeah. hundred um, percent. I've been through it. So I try to, now that I'm kind of on the other side of these things, try to um, serve in that same role for other people where I can. Um, yes, you definitely do. That's how we connected basically yep. is through Instagram. So thank you for everything that you've done for the community. What a fucking story. <laughs> so, I'm so glad so that you're feeling good and the baby's healthy. Wow. I just, yeah, so I'm 43 and my doctor, my REI, when I went back, he said, he was like, Stephanie, you're supposed to get worse at this as you get older, not better. I said, well, there, there you go. I'll take it. All right, everybody. As always, thank you so much for listening. And Stephanie, oh my gosh, you're going to have your baby any day now. So if you guys want to follow her, go over to my Instagram at infertilafstories and I will tag her and then you can go to her account and see what happens with her babe who is going to be here any moment. Thank you so much for listening, like I said. And if you guys are looking for more support, as always, check out Fertility Rally. We're a community. We've got content and we've got curated events. We are there for you, no matter what you're going through. So check it out on Instagram at Fertility Rally, or you can go to our site, fertilityrally.com. We have so many members from all over the world going through so many different things. So there's definitely somebody, at least you know, a handful of people you can connect with, if not more, but we're always looking to grow our community and reach out. So please spread the word. Thanks again for your support. And I will talk to you guys next time.